0: Today on Golden Girls Sports, we open serve on our third season, and volley back and forth with some tennis jokes.
1: Marcus Allen.
2: Mike Tyson. Extra Innings. The tight end decoys, so it looks like we're running a draw play. Magic Johnson. Bobby Old. Tampa Bay Bucks. And they're
0: Welcome to the first episode of our third season, in a way our third quarter. If you've been listening along this entire time, I can't thank you enough for taking this crazy ride with me. If this is your first episode, I appreciate you giving the show a shot, and I hope you're ready to hear sports and TV trivia in a way you've never heard before. It's a little weird, but trust me, and it's way better than any of Rose's St. Olaf stories. Till Death Do We Volley premiered on March 18, 1989, the 19th episode of the Golden Girls' fourth season. It was written by Richard Vaxy and Tracy Gamble and directed by Terry Hughes. It aired right after You Gotta Have Hope and Fiddler on the Ropes, two episodes we've discussed earlier on this podcast. Dorothy is set to attend a class reunion and is excited to reconnect with her best friend from childhood, Trudy McMahon. Well, best friend in this case meaning something a little different than it usually does. You see, Trudy and Dorothy are more like frenemies before frenemies were really a thing. And they've spent their entire lives one-upping, insulting, and playing pranks on each other.
1: Now, I think what Ma's referring to (laughs) is a little practical joke that Trudy played on me. You know, all of us on the tennis team decided that we would wear our tennis whites to the prom. Well, I showed up and... I was the only
2: one. Oh, no. your date must have been horrified. No, her brother was a really good sport about it.
0: And Dorothy is determined to show Trudy how much better she is at pretty much everything, starting with tennis.
1: Uh. Uh, Oh, which reminds me, I have to rush. To where to? Tennis lessons. I figure if she's going to be here, we ought to have a nice, quiet game. Oh, that's sweet. And a lot of crap. I'm going to mop the court with her. (laughs) Oh,
2: my. Looks like our Dorothy still holds a grudge. Of course she holds a grudge. We Sicilians are good at that. That and holding a grudge. Sophia, you said holding a grudge twice. Hey, if you're good at something, you brag about it.
0: (laughs) As soon as Trudy and her husband Jack arrived, their rivalry is already back in full swing. The two old friends head into the kitchen to get some refreshments and end up arm wrestling. On the day of the big match, Trudy and Dorothy engage in an epic struggle, while Blanche, Rose, and Sophia watch intently. Trudy appears to have the upper hand, but Dorothy is keeping up right alongside her.
2: Boy, Trudy is beating the dickens out of
1: Dorothy. Oh, oh, I I just have to... Catch my breath. <laughs> are we going to play or do you want to forfeit? No way. Now, Dorothy's Bornak doesn't know the meaning of the word forfeit. And she's a teacher, too.
2: <laughs> no wonder the Japanese are ahead of us. <laughs> I'm going to kill you, Trudy. Oh, do you really think she can make a comeback? I'm sure she can. Dorothy's running Trudy all over the court. Uh, Trudy tripped.
0: Then Trudy stops playing, because she is dead. Naturally, Dorothy is beside herself with grief. At the class reunion, she struggles to even come out of her room and rushes back in after announcing to a shocked crowd that Trudy is, in fact, deceased. That's when the damnedest thing happens. Trudy walks through the door and casually tells everybody that it was a practical joke, which goes over about as well as you'd expect it to. When she goes to Dorothy's bedroom to come clean, Trudy gets a surprise of her own. She finds Dorothy in bed with her husband, Jack. Trudy's pissed, but it turns out it was just a taste of her own medicine. Dorothy and Jack still have their clothes on. Dorothy had figured out that Trudy's death was a fake and decided to cook up some revenge. That puts an end to their decades-long war and their amateur tennis rivalry. Trudy was played by actress Anne Francis who had an incredibly long career in a variety of different mediums. Born in 1930, she was a child photo model and TV image test subject all before the age of 10. She worked on Broadway and in radio soaps as a kid and graduated into supporting roles in feature films and on TV anthology shows. Beyond being just an accomplished actress at a young age, Frances was also a unique beauty, with light blonde hair and a signature mole just below her lip times, Richard Corliss described her as a cross between a Marilyn Monroe or Jane Mansfield-type bombshell with the front-facing intelligence of an Audrey Hepburn or Grace Kelly. Often cast as a mousy but gorgeous young lady, Frances hit it big in 1956's Forbidden Planet, considered one of the most seminal and influential science fiction films of all time. As Altara, the daughter of a mysterious planet-controlling scientist, she falls in love with dashing spaceship captain Leslie Nielsen and in one famous scene is found swimming nude in a lake by him. Anne Francis is his alluring daughter, Alta, who has never seen a young man till she meets Commander Adams, played by talented Leslie Nielsen.
2: Come in. Then bring my bathing suit. What's a bathing suit? Oh, murder.
0: The provocative poster showed Francis in a super short skirt being abducted by the film's unofficial star, Robbie the Robot. And although no such scene appeared in the actual movie, the poster helped set the tone for much of the rest of her career. She co-starred in movies with Paul Newman, Spencer Tracy, and Glenn Ford, but eventually moved back to TV, where she did two memorable episodes of The Twilight Zone. In 1965, she landed her own series, playing the title character in Honey West, an action show about a female private detective who was one part James Bond, one part Napoleon Solo, and one part Emma Peel. Armed with a lipstick communicator, an array of karate chops, a glamorous wardrobe, a pet ocelot, and a male sidekick, the one-season show made an impression on a cult of viewers who saw it as ahead of its time. Frances once said, The character made young women think there was much more they could reach for. It encouraged a lot of people. After Honey West, Frances became somewhat of a professional TV guest star, popping up on pretty much every hour-long cop show, western, drama, or anthology series for the next 20 years, including Mission Impossible, Gunsmoke, Jake and the Fat Man, Murder, She Wrote, Dallas, Columbo, Kung Fu, and pretty much every show Aaron Spelling ever produced. She didn't do a lot of sitcoms, but in addition to The Golden Girls, she appeared on episodes of Home Improvement and The Drew Carey Show. Anne Francis was married twice and had two daughters. Her younger daughter was adopted in 1970, making Francis the first single woman in California to be granted a child via adoption. In January of 2011, 80-year-old Anne Francis died of complications due to pancreatic cancer in Santa Barbara, California. She left behind a legacy of cool characters that Hollywood is still trying and in a lot of ways failing to catch up to. Being a guest star on The Golden Girls was a fun role, according to Frances herself. Just before the episode, she had worked with Bea Arthur on a TV movie where she also played an ex-classmate of hers. Pretty weird considering their eight-year age difference. Trudy's husband Jack was played by actor Robert King, who does not have an extensive amount of biographical information on the internet. According to IMDb, he has over 48 TV and movie credits, including The Original Out-of-Towners, The Cosby Show, Santa Barbara, Throb, 30-something, Dream On, Forever Night, and Robocop the Series. The sport of tennis can trace its history back to the Middle Ages, when monks played a game by hitting a ball with their hands. Eventually, they started using leather gloves and then rackets. And after a couple of hundred years, people all across France were playing a game called Jeu de Pomme, or Game of the Pong. Starting a game usually meant calling out Tenez, which means play. After that, the game took on the name of Real Tennis. The guys who really got the fuzzy green ball rolling were Major Walter Clopton Wingfield, who wrote a rule book and patented the game in 1874, and cricket player Harry Jem, who established the first tennis club in England in 1872. Around that time, the game came to the United States. Three men in Massachusetts were believed to have been the first owners of a lawn tennis set. But New Yorker Mary Outerbridge brought a set back from England and gave it to her brother, who was a director at the Staten Island Cricket and Baseball Club. Later that decade, the All-England Croquet Club used one of its Wimbledon courts to host a tennis tournament, using the real tennis method of scoring and changing Wingfield's hourglass-shaped court into a rectangle. The winner of the first Wimbledon championships was Spencer Gore, And soon, other tournaments were being held all over the U.K. The first U.S. championship was held in 1880 back at the Staten Island Cricket and Baseball Club. So that borough is actually good for something. The sport didn't really gain in popularity until the 20th century, when independent barnstorming operations gave way to what's now known as the Open Era, or a series of professional tennis tournaments governed by the International Tennis Federation. Despite hundreds of years of history spanning multiple countries, no one's exactly sure why tennis is scored the way it is. Love, 15, 30, 40 game, might have something to do with the faces of a clock or the dimensions of a jeu de pomme court or the French word for egg. Nobody knows. So if you're like me and a typical tennis match is sort of hard to follow, don't feel too bad. Doesn't make any sense to anybody. Tennis also figured into the show's two-part finale, ...and Dorothy's ultimate happiness. In One Flew Out of the Cuckoo's Nest, the 25th and 26th episodes of Season 7, written by Don Siegel, Jerry Perzigian, and Mitchell Hurwitz, and directed by Lex Paceris, Blanche finds out that she'll be getting a family visit just at the wrong time.
2: Anyway, I ran into this man at the produce counter, and he asked me to play tennis with him tonight, but I forgot that Big Daddy's baby brother, my dearest and nearest relative, is flying in at seven. This is such a dilemma. Whatever am I going to do? Blanche, it doesn't sound like a dilemma at all. You know, Rose, you're right. Family you can see any time, but a one-night stand only happens one night.
0: (laughs) In order to get out of uncle-sitting... Blanche sets up Lucas on a blind date with the only available woman she knows, Dorothy. The date is an awkward one, and with both of them having a reason to get back at Blanche, they hatch a plan to pretend they're in love and planning to get married. While Blanche freaks out, real love blooms between Dorothy and Lucas. They do end up getting married, and Dorothy finally gets the happy ending she never thought she'd find. Writer Tracy Gamble wasn't a fan of how Dorothy exited the show, but eventually came around to it. Quote, I didn't like that we were ending with Dorothy departing to get married because it seemed to me like the Golden Girls was about single women and the theme was that they were vital. This ending seemed to say that a man was the answer to all of Dorothy's problems. However, what I did like about the finale was when Dorothy kept coming back to say goodbye and then didn't come back. And suddenly you feel her missing and the void and the emptiness. I felt that was a great way to underscore the feeling. And if we were going to marry her off, Leslie Nielsen was a terrific choice. End quote. Yep. Blanche's Uncle Lucas Hollingsworth was played by Anne Francis's Forbidden Planet co-star Leslie Nielsen, who was in the midst of his incredible career renaissance. The Regina, Saskatchewan-born actor had a legendary career that could be neatly split into two halves: before Airplane and after Airplane. After serving in the Royal Canadian Air Force, Nielsen worked as a DJ at a radio station in Calgary alongside another future white-haired dramatic actor, Lauren Green. Nielsen won a scholarship to the Neighborhood Playhouse moved to New York in 1949, and became a frequent presence in dramatic anthology series with titles like the Magnavox Theater, the Philco Goodyear Television Playhouse, and Studio One in Hollywood. He eventually moved out to LA and started getting into feature films like Forbidden Planet, Doris Day Vehicle Tammy and The Bachelor, and The Vagabond King, where he played the King of France. Can you imagine Leslie Nielsen as the King of France? But soon it was back to TV where that blonde hair, strong jaw, and deep voice got him into a lot of westerns and dramas and cop shows. His most enduring role during this period was as revolutionary war hero Francis Marion in Disney's Swamp Fox series. And so it went for years, Nielsen playing authority figures and cowboys and sophisticates and autocrats and a host of other squares. One of his biggest roles during that period was as the doomed cruise ship captain in Irwin Allen's The Poseidon Adventure. Then, in 1980... He was cast in Airplane, the laugh-a-minute parody of disaster movies like The Poseidon Adventure by the team of brothers David and Jerry Zucker and Jim Abrams. It was as Dr. Rumack that Nielsen's dead serious delivery turned purposely unfunny lines into the funniest jokes anyone had ever heard. It was a remarkable trick pulled off by Nielsen and his co-stars, many of whom were dramatic leads of the 60s as well, like Robert Stack, Lloyd Bridges, and Peter Graves. You'd better tell the captain we've got to land as soon as we can. This woman has to be gotten to a hospital.
2: A hospital? What is it?
1: It's a big building with patients, but that's not important right now. Tell the captain I must speak to him.
2: Certainly.
1: How soon can you land? I can't tell. You can tell me I'm a doctor. No, I mean, I'm just not sure. Or can't you take a guess? Well, not for another two hours. You can't take a guess for another two hours? No, 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 I mean we can't land for another two hours. What is it, doctor? What's going on? I'm not sure haven't seen anything like this since the Anita Brad concert. What was it we had
0: for dinner tonight?
2: Well, we had a choice, steak, fish.
0: Yes, yes, I remember I had lasagna. According to Jerry Zucker, quote, Leslie was the key to Airplane and perfect in the role. I look at his performance and it was flawless. We cracked up during shooting, then cracked up again during dailies. He really got what we were doing and he loved it, end quote. Airplane was no one-off, though. The low-budget movie was a hit, and Nielsen embarked on his second and definitely more enduring phase of his career. He stuck with Abrams and the Zuckers for the 1982 TV series Police Squad, an airplane-like show that was almost a direct parody of a forgotten Lee Marvin cop show called M-Squad. For Frank Drebin, a police officer of ever-changing rank, the cases didn't matter. Police Squad was about absurd, rapid-fire jokes that had never been seen on television before. Sadly, they wouldn't be seen for long there, either, because Police Squad was canceled after just six episodes. But Nielsen was nominated for an Emmy for his work. Frank Drebin would return in 1988 in The Naked Gun, a feature film that used some of the jokes from Police Squad, and a ton more that people like me have been quoting for over 30 years. That spoof finally made Leslie Nielsen a movie star at the age of 62. All of the movies for the rest of his career, including two Naked Gun sequels, Mel Brooks's Dracula Dead and Loving It, and a live-action adaptation of blind cartoon character Mr. Magoo would be very broad comedy, although none equaled the genius of the original Naked Gun. In November of 2010, Leslie Nielsen passed away at the age of 84 after battling pneumonia. At the time of the Naked Gun's release, he told the New York Times that his late-in-life change into full-time comedic actor was no accident. Quote, It's been dawning on me slowly that for the past 35 years I have been cast against type, and I'm finally getting to do what I really wanted to do." For the Golden Girls, tennis was as much about aesthetics as it was about athletics. Before real-life superhero Serena Williams changed the way people think about tennis wear, short skirts and collared shirts, generally in white, were the usual uniform for female players, as well as a sporty way to show a little extra leg. Writers were concerned that a joke in Till Death Do We Volley in which Dorothy taunts Trudy about having to wear a tennis dress, wouldn't work given Anne Francis' status as a sex symbol, even in 1989. But B. Arthur fought to keep it in and made it work.
1: Well, aren't you afraid of being humiliated on the tennis court, Dorothy? Me? Humiliated? I think you forget, Trudy, we have to wear tennis dresses. You're on, you pathetic middle-aged cow. I am looking forward to it, you miserable sack of cellulite. (laughs)
0: In The Triangle, a Season 1 episode we talked about on Episode 5 of this podcast, Rose offers Dorothy's boyfriend pictures of her in her tennis skirt as a way to lure him into a trap to expose him as a lech. For Blanche, a tennis court was just another sexy arena for her to conquer. In Clinton Avenue Memoirs, the Season 5 episode also written by Vaccine Gamble, Blanche volunteers to help Rose gather information about corruption in senior health care. But Blanche's version of volunteering doesn't involve licking stamps or canvassing a neighborhood. Hi.
2: Blanche, I thought you were going to be working. You don't think playing three sets of tennis in this heat is work? When are you going to get the survey done? Rose, let me explain something. Now, in this world, there are two kinds of people. One is an industrious, hardworking, give 100% pain in the butt to everybody else go-getter. I am not one of those people.
0: (laughs) Eventually, Blanche does actually end up helping Rose, and having her check made out directly to her hairstylist, Hair by Robert. In the Robert Bruce and Martin Weiss written Great Expectations, another season five episode that aired two weeks before Clinton Avenue memoirs, Blanche is dating a man named Stephen, who's a little different than the men she usually prefers in that he's her own age and going through a divorce. After a period of separation, they rekindle things on a tennis date. Uh, Sort of. Hi. Hey, Sophia.
1: Stephen, nice to see you again. Dorothy,
0: it's nice to see you. You mind if I get something to drink? I must have sweat off 10 pounds today.
1: You played a lot of tennis? (laughs)
0: Tennis. Yeah, right. Later, when Stephen has a heart attack and ends up in the hospital, Blanche wonders if she should visit him and escalate the relationship beyond just a good time. Eventually, she decides to go, where she learns that Stephen has gone back to his ex-wife. Stephen was played by esteemed sitcom actor Robert Mandan, whose voice and face might be more recognizable these days than his name is. The clever Missouri native started on TV series in the late 50s, and for the next 20-plus years showed up on everything from Mission Impossible and Mannix to Sanford and Son and Moth. Hardly a show has passed through the airwaves that he hasn't been on, Mandan had an early recurring role on *Carib*, the forgotten proto-Miami Vice which starred Stacey Keach and Carl Franklin as Florida-based cops who solve crimes in the Caribbean. Mandan played their Edward James Olmos-style superior officer. In 1977, Mandan starred in probably his most famous role, playing the snooty, moneyed Chester Tate on Susan Harris's groundbreaking soap. The soap opera spoof was perfect for a guy like Mandan, who could do both fake series and broad comedy easily. Appearing on real soaps like The Doctors and Search for Tomorrow probably didn't hurt him either. Mandan starred in 75 of Soap's 88 total episodes, but continued to be a frequent guest star on tons of shows like The Love Boat, Fantasy Island, and the final episodes of The Facts of Life. After Soap, he had recurring roles on Private Benjamin and on Three's Company and Three's a Crowd, where he used those great temples and deep voice to intimidate the hell out of his goofball son-in-law, Jack Tripper, who of course was played by John Ritter. Robert Mandan also appeared on stage in plays by Anne Mira and Harold Pinter, and on Broadway alongside Lauren Bacall and Bonnie Franklin in Applause. He still showed up on random TV shows, sometimes doing narration and voiceover work, until 2014, around which he chose to retire. With a resume like his, I'm sure there's not much more he can do that he hasn't done already. For Sophia, tennis represents leisure and privilege. And she uses it on a couple of punchlines connected to her old home, Shady Pines. In The Auction, a season four episode written by Eric Cohen, Sophia and Dorothy have another disagreement about just how comfortable Shady Pines was.
1: My please, for the hundredth time, Shady Pines was a beautiful retirement village. Sure, sure. And is known for its top-notch tennis facilities.
2: <laughs>
0: The official New York Department of Corrections handbook for Attica states that, quote, recreational programs offer the offenders the opportunity to participate in a wide variety of recreational activities, including organized sports, participation with community groups, fine arts, in-house video programs, and wellness programs. As far as I can tell, the prison, which holds 2,253 prisoners, doesn't have tennis courts, but it does have four baseball fields. Uh, If you end up in the joint and want to play some tennis against your fellow inmates, you'll want to go to the U.S. Penitentiary in Atlanta. They have a couple of courts. Shady Pines' Tennis Club came up again in Season six's Older and Wiser, which was also written by Vaccine Gamble. We talked about this one in Episode 14. After spending time at the Cypress Grove old age home thinking she was the place's activities director, Sophia realizes how good she had it at the home that she's hated all these years.
2: I don't like this whole deal. Shady Pines, now, there's a home. Luxury suites, tennis tournaments, want a massage? Dial 9. And the food, the filet mignon. Oh, really, Ma? Shady Pines had filet mignon? One. They'd throw it in the pit and make us fight for it.
0: (laughs) In season two's Family Affair, which we mentioned in episode seven, Dorothy's son Michael and Rose's daughter Bridget have a one-night stand at the house. And Sophia is just as upset at her grandson as his mother is. The next morning, after the dalliance is revealed, Sophia enters the kitchen clad head-to-toe in black and with a black veil hiding her face. And she's in no mood for stupid questions.
2: Good morning.
1: (laughs) Mom, why are you dressed like that?
2: I'm introducing my new line of tennis square. What do you think? I'm in mourning. For whom, Sophia? Michael, after last night, he doesn't exist.
0: Finally, we have The President is Coming, The President is Coming, the two-part season five clip show finale credited to eight different writers. President George Bush is visiting Miami, and through a coincidence of sitcom circumstances, will come directly to the girl's house on Richmond Street. And while three of the roommates are looking forward to just shaking his hand, Dorothy plans on giving the Republican a piece of her mind, which reminds Sophia of a different kind of outspoken arguer.
1: <laughs> I'm not writing to Phil. I'm just jotting down some things that I want to say to the president.
2: Oh, Dorothy, you're not going to make a scene, are you?
1: Oh, hey, come on, give me a little credit. I mean, it's not like I'm some kind of hothead.
2: Please, I put you about even with John McEnroe. Except McEnroe knows when to stop. <laughs>
0: Having your temper compared to John McEnroe's isn't a good sign. Even today, 36 years after his famous meltdown at Wimbledon, in which he chastised an umpire that he felt could not be serious after calling a shot out, McEnroe is still known for his fiery temper and big mouth on and off the court. But we shouldn't forget that the Queens, New York native is also a Hall of Famer, with one of the most devastating arsenals of any tennis player ever. His grueling grudge matches with rivals like Bjorn Borg, Jimmy Connors, and Yvonne Lendl are legendary, and his 77 singles titles and 72 doubles titles are the most combined titles in the open era. He was ranked number one four straight years in the late 70s and early 80s, and won 17 majors. And while he was doing all that winning, McEnroe was living the life of a true rock star, hanging out with the Rolling Stones, Robert Plant, Chrissy Hind, and others, and marrying actress Tatum O'Neill. He did a lot of parting with fellow player Vitas Gerulaitis, who took him to Studio 54 and backstage during the Stones' Tattoo You Tour. McEnroe enraged the tennis community when he blew off the 1979 Wimbledon Champions Dinner to hang out with Hind and the rest of the pretenders God knows where. Three years after his marriage to O'Neill ended, McEnroe married singer Patti Smythe of Scandal, and the two are still together. His time as a premier player ended in the early 80s, when he was about 27 years old. Although McEnroe never stopped playing, even up to today, he has branched out into a lot of other arenas looking for his next niche. He's been one of the more respected tennis television analysts for both ESPN and the BBC, has acted in various TV shows and movies, hosted his own CNBC talk show, written two memoirs, become an international art collector, and is occasionally a working musician. McEnroe can be seen playing guitar on stage with Smythe or sometimes with New York Rangers goalie Henrik Lundqvist and other New York celebrities. In 1999, he was inducted into the International Tennis Hall of Fame. These days, McEnroe feels terrible about that Wimbledon outburst all those years ago, and attended therapy sessions to manage his anger after his divorce. He has said that if a day goes by in which he doesn't hear, you can't be serious at least a couple of times, it's a miracle. But that mouth of his is still getting him into trouble. In June of 2017, during an appearance on NPR, McEnroe said that while he thought Serena Williams was an incredible player and the best female tennis player ever, she would probably be ranked 700 in the world if she played on the men's tour. McEnroe later said he regretted not saying that comparing men's and women's players would be like comparing apples and oranges. Although he never actually apologized, he did say that he would probably be ranked 1200th in the world if he went back on the tour. At 58 years old, he saves his most savage insults for himself. The voice of George Bush in The President is Coming was provided by Harry Shearer, the longtime cast member of The Simpsons, Spinal Tap, and a million other things. It would be impossible to encapsulate his entire career into a few sentences, so I'm not even going to try. One funny thing I learned, though. George Bush is in no way the only political figure Shear has played in his legendary career. He played Ronald Reagan on Saturday Night Live, G. Gordon Liddy in the movie Dick, Newt Gingrich in the TV movie State of the Union Undressed, and Richard Nixon in Nixon's The One, a TV series that uses actual Watergate tapes as scripts. He also played an unnamed president in an episode of the CBS drama The Agency. Let's go back to Till Death Do We Volley, specifically the scene in which Dorothy and Trudy are found arm wrestling. It's not surprising that tennis would have roots going back a few hundred years, it's a little surprising that arm wrestling has a history that goes back to the 1950s. The sport began at Gallardi Saloon in Petaluma, California, where the first wrist wrestling tournament was organized by newspaper columnist Bill Soberanis in 1952. The first World Wrist Wrestling Championship was held a decade later and drew competitors from all over the world to the Northern California town. Soon after, it became a fixture on ABC's Wide World of Sports, and Soberanis co-wrote a book with his business partner, Dave DeVoto, about the best techniques for the sport. Soberanis passed away in 2003, but a statue in his honor sits in Petaluma to commemorate his role in starting the arm wrestling movement. Of course, we can't mention arm wrestling without mentioning the greatest arm wrestling movie of all time, and still the only arm wrestling movie of all time, 1987 Sylvester Stallone non-classic Over the Top. Stallone plays Lincoln Hawks, a trucker trying to rebuild his relationship with his estranged son while also competing in the Arm Wrestling World Championships in Las Vegas. It also features the kick-ass song Winner Takes It All by Sammy Hagar. Death Do We Volley is a funny episode, but Anne Francis's performance in it is kind of weird. The way she has Trudy talk sounds like somebody from an old gangster movie. My wife and I both find it very off-putting and distracting. I had heard of Anne Francis growing up, but I never knew this was her. And as an introduction, I don't think it's very representative of her career. Having now read up on her, I've become very interested in her early works and in particular Honey West, which I never heard of before. I am fascinated by 60s spy shows like The Man from UNCLE, Mission Impossible, Wild Wild West, The Avengers, and lots of others. And that show seems like a really unique entry into the genre. It's a shame it lasted only one season, but I guess that'll make it easier for me to catch up on when I have the time. Next time on Golden Girls Sports, we attempt to be topical for once and celebrate the opening of the 2018 Winter Olympics with sitcom jokes about sex and the luge. Golden Girls Sports is written, produced, and narrated by Dan Saracini. The theme is Golden Sunrise, instrumental version, by Josh Woodward, and is available at freemusicarchive.org. Visit goldengirlssportspodcast.com for show notes and references, and follow us on Twitter at goldengirlssp. Thanks for listening.